The following programming is sponsored by the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. The views expressed do not necessarily reflect the views of this station, its management, or Beasley Media Group. brought to you by the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. Positively Pro-Life brings you inspirational stories, important legislative updates, and informative interviews as we restore and strengthen a culture of life. I'm Bonnie Finnerty, Education Director at the Federation, and I am joined by my distinguished colleague, Maria Gallagher, our Legislative Director. Hi, Maria. Hi, Bonnie. It's great to be with you today. Great to be with you. Now, since June, when the Supreme Court overturned Roe, we've witnessed much more media coverage on the issue of abortion. And one subject that keeps coming up again and again is that of rape. Even though it comprises a small fraction of 1% of all abortions, abortion is an emotional issue to begin with. But compound that with the trauma of rape, even pro-life advocates who recognize that all life is precious from the moment of conception, can find themselves unsure of the best way to respond. But what if you met someone who was conceived in rape? Would that change someone's perspective? Today's guest is one such person. Rebecca Kiesling is an attorney, a mother, and a pro-life advocate who was herself conceived in rape. She will join us later to share her compelling story, and it is one that everyone needs to hear. In addition, Maria will report on efforts that are being made in the U.S. Congress to expand abortion. But first, we'll start with some pro-life inspiration. The Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation is comprised of about 40 county-based chapters that have come into existence at varying points during the last 50 years. Many of our chapter's origins go back to the early 70s, even before Roe v. Wade legalized abortion on demand nationwide. Our early chapters were largely comprised of concerned citizens who shared a common view that every life is sacred and worthy of protection and that abortion is wrong. Those early chapters gathered and organized to find ways to fight a growing aggressive abortion industry and to support women and babies during times of crises. Now, there are very few people who were active in pro-life chapters in the early 70s that are still involved, but there's at least one. And this past week, she turned 94. Her name is Betty Caffrey, and she has been president of our Wyoming Valley chapter, Pennsylvanians for Human Life, since 1976. That is a 46-year tenure. Imagine all that has transpired during that time in the pro-life movement. She has seen progress made on many fronts, such as the Hyde Amendment and the Pennsylvania Abortion Control Act, and ultimately the overturn of Roe but she's also seen setbacks in the effort to protect vulnerable life in the womb. Yet she never wavered. She never gave up. When others might've become discouraged or felt that the pro-life cause was unwinnable, Betty Caffrey stood firm. Betty's involvement in the pro-life movement was not limited to chapter leadership though. 
She also founded the Wyoming Valley Crisis Pregnancy Center in 1982, which has provided material and emotional support to countless pregnant women and their children over the past four decades. Both the chapter and the Pregnancy Resource Center operate solely on donations, never accepting government or church funding. And everyone involved in both entities, including Betty, are volunteers. Can you imagine volunteering for a cause for almost 50 years? Betty's dedication has not gone unnoticed. In a recent article that our legislative director, Maria Gallagher, wrote about Betty, she notes that back when she turned 90, Betty received a number of honors, including a papal blessing. U.S. Senator Pat Toomey also sent her an American flag, which had been flown over the U.S. Capitol building. And long before that, Betty received the highest of honors from us, the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation, when she received the Lifetime Achievement Award. We want to wish Betty Caffrey a happy 94th birthday and thank her for her persistent dedication to a most noble cause, the fundamental right to life. As Maria writes, leadership does not necessarily have an expiration date. Thank you, Betty, for leading and for inspiring us all. Maria? Bonnie, thank you so much for that inspirational story. The following is from a National Right to Life news release. The National Right to Life Committee, the Federation of Right to Life Affiliates in each of the 50 states and the District of Columbia denounced pro-abortion House Democrats for pushing abortion on demand and failing to vote to protect mothers and their unborn children. The House votes included votes on two measures brought by pro-abortion Democrats, H.R. 8297, the so-called Ensuring Women's Right to Reproductive Freedom Act, and H.R. 8296, the so-called Women's Health Protection Act. In response, Republican leadership put forward two pro-life measures, a motion to recommit on the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act and a motion to recommit on the Child Interstate Abortion Notification Act. Pro-abortion Democrats in the House have a no-limits approach to abortion on demand, said Carol Tobias, president of National Right to Life. The votes show that Democrats are not interested in protecting women and their unborn children. They are only interested in protecting the interests of the abortion lobby. H.R. 8297, the so-called Ensuring Women's Right to Reproductive Freedom Act, contains numerous provisions aimed at preventing enforcement of state laws, particularly when it comes to protective state laws regulating chemical abortion. Further, this legislation could affect state laws involving parental consent and the abortions of minors. Additionally, there are provisions that could be used to shield abusers and human traffickers from liability, perhaps even empowering them to bring civil actions against their victims or the state. Tobias said, H.R. 8297 could cause further harm to women and girls by potentially shielding abusers and human traffickers. This bill is reckless, but pro-abortion Democrats are more interested in protecting an industry than protecting its victims. Bonnie. Thank you for that important update, Maria. Well, I am honored to introduce today's guest. 
Rebecca Kiesling has been an international pro-life speaker and adoption speaker since 1995, speaking for various pro-life organizations, including Right to Life groups, Crisis Pregnancy Center fundraisers, 40 Days for Life events, rallies, churches, high schools, universities, Students for Life, women's conferences, attorney conferences, adoption events, all throughout North America, Europe, and Latin America, about 50 to 75 times a year. Politically influential, she has changed the heart of Governor Rick Perry during his presidential campaign, as well as Newt Gingrich, and many legislators across the US, Canada, Europe, and Latin America. She's helped pregnant rape victims all around the world to choose life for their children. She's an attorney and raised five children, with the two oldest being adopted and who passed away on July 29, 2020 from fentanyl poisoning. She also lost two additional babies to miscarriage and her 33-day-old adopted daughter, Cassie, who was born with special needs. We are honored to have Rebecca, just a fierce pro-life advocate, join us today. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. Rebecca, um, growing up, did you always know that you were adopted? And what was your life like growing up? What was your adoptive family like? So I was so young that I, when I was told that I really didn't understand the concept, my parents told me I was chosen. So I sort of thought it was like the whole notion of the stork. <laughs> um, they didn't really talk about a pregnant woman. It wasn't until I was um, maybe in third grade where they started talking about a birth mother figure. And then I saw the movie Annie, Little Orphan Annie, not the movie. First I saw the the musical uh, when it came to Detroit and listened to the song all the time. And I began to romanticize about this birth family that I had out there somewhere. Um, I was born July 22nd, 1969, three weeks before Woodstock. So I thought like maybe I was a love child. Uh, maybe my parents were hippies or maybe my father had gone to Vietnam. And so she was on her own, or maybe he was killed in Vietnam. Like, you know, th these are the things I contemplated. Um, my parents told me, however, that they knew that she was divorced and had two other children. Um, but I still kind of thought that she was like a young mom. I just imagined that she was like a young mom, kind of what you always hear about. And that's what I assumed. Uh, the family I grew up in was... Jewish, but they were secular Jews, even though they sent me to five years of Hebrew school when I was about mitzvah. Um, they really didn't do any of it at home. They lived as atheists. Um, my Jewish grandmother was pro-life and told me after my grandfather died that he had wanted her to abort my aunt, huh. and um, which is the younger of her two children. And she just cried talking about it. My aunt's daughter had aborted her first great grandchild just two years earlier. And so my, my grandmother was just really torn apart. <clears throat> she had spared the life of my aunt, but didn't tell anybody this difficult family story. She had kept it a secret all these years until after he died. Um, but by then, it was sort of too late to impart the pro-life values to my aunt and her daughter. 
And so she lost her first great grandchild mm-hmm. to a So how did you find out about the circumstances of your conception? Um, I was 18 when I petitioned for my non-identifying information and it had all kinds of details about my birth mother, except for her name, of course. And all it said for my biological father was that he was Caucasian and of large build. And immediately I thought, that sounds like a police description. So I called my caseworker and asked her, was my mom raped? And she told me, yeah, I didn't want to tell you. So many people think that abortion is a compassionate solution in the case of rape, citing the trauma endured by the woman. What would you say to them? Okay, well, first of all, I appreciate people having care and concern for pregnant rape victims. They should, we all should. My dear mother was a pregnant rape victim. So many of my best friends in life are. I'm the president founder of Save the One. We have a global network of over 1,100 who became pregnant by rape or were conceived in rape, mostly the mothers who became pregnant by rape. We want people to have care and concern for the price for the plight of women who become pregnant by rape. Um, So we need to show appreciation for that, but we also need to educate them. Um, One of the most common things you hear is that they'll talk about the rapist child and we want to immediately correct them when, when you hear that. I am not the rapist child. I'm the child of a rape victim and I'm a child of God. And, and I've had like reporters say, well, isn't it a biological fact that you're the child of a rape, of a um, rapist? And I'll say to them, well, okay, yeah, but it's also a biological fact that I'm a child of a rape victim, but you chose not to say that. You know, you chose to malign me. Um, I'm a family law attorney. So in the law, uh, we have this legal term, child born out of wedlock in the Parentage Act. It used to be called the Paternity Act, but before that, in the 70s, before it was changed, it it was called the Illegitimacy Act. And the legal definition of the child was illegitimate child, and we stopped doing that. And you think that's bad. In the 30s, before they changed it, it had been called the Bastard Act. And the legal definition of a child born out of wedlock was bastard. And this was true all over the country. And we stopped doing that. We stopped maligning children, calling them names based upon the behavior of the parents. But people think nothing of calling us child of a rapist, rapist child, monster's child. So anytime you hear that, you need to correct them and say rape victim's child. And plus, we don't want to suggest that rapists deserve any parental rights, right? Um, so that that's very important. And I'm not a product of rape. You know, that sounds like a a byproduct and um, or or like you're a commodity when you get called a product. When else do we call a human being a product? So we we want to correct people on that as well. And then um, we want to focus on the humanity of the child. You know, I I ask people, look, in, in the Me Too day and age, would you support a law which would authorize any rape victim, any woman to just say she was raped and she would be allowed to hire someone to kill her rapist with no police report, 
no due process, no right to trial, and she could just hire a hitman, an assassin to kill her rapist, or just her innocent child. Because that's what abortion is. Only instead of the perpetrator, you're killing an innocent person and putting them to death with no due process, no right to trial, nothing. Just say rape and that's it. And, and that's why they always advocate for, you know, they'll say, oh, especially in cases of rape, they just want abortion on demand for any reason. And, you know, secret passwords say rape. And that's what they had Norma McCorby do, Jane Roe from Roe v. Wade. Um, she did an affidavit to, to Congress, an affidavit saying that, um, she was told to lie and say that she was gang raped by her lawyers, that it would make her case stronger. What led you to become such a passionate spokeswoman for the cause of life? Well, of course, learning my story, I immediately felt targeted and devalued by our society. And, you know, I cried out for my worth. Um, I know I did not deserve the death penalty for his crime. Now, an interesting, the United States Supreme Court said rapists don't deserve the death penalty. Coker v. Georgia and Kennedy v. Louisiana, they said even for child molesters, it's cruel and unusual punishment. So I began, you know, defending my life and, and I sort of wanted to justify my own existence and prove my worth to people because I didn't know my worth. Today, I know my worth. I know that I'm created by God in his image for a purpose, which was not to be aborted. Um, and it's, and, and I, you know, I learned from my birth mother that I was almost killed at two illegal abortions and that if abortion had been legal, she would have aborted me. So that was my near-death experience, my, my life-changing near-death experience. And I think the easiest thing for anyone to do is to just live their life and just say, oh, well, at least I got to be born. You know, you don't have to suffer ridicule, right? Um, but I feel like my life was spared from a burning building and I have the opportunity to go back and save others, you know, and what I just have to suffer ridicule. It's not like I'm risking my life. Um, although I would, you know, if, if somebody said shut up or we'll, you know, come kill you, I'm, I'm not going to be silent. Um, I was given the gift of life. I was protected. I wasn't lucky. I was protected by Michigan law. I literally owe my birth to the law in Michigan before Roe v. Wade, which protected me, which is still on the books right now in Michigan, the 1931 law. And I know that everyone else deserves that same protection, that they're just as worthy of love and life as you or me. And so I feel a sense of responsibility and obligation to go back and save others. Rebecca, can we circle back with um, a follow-up question? You said your mother had, had sought an abortion or other people maybe had sought that for her. Um, can you describe the circumstances of why those didn't happen? Sure. Um, she told me that for the first, it was the typical, you know, back alley conditions, although it, it's not back alley, it was an OBGYN's office in Detroit. And she had to go through the back door. It was $500. And when she walked in, like many of the legal abortion clinics today, it was filthy. 
there was blunder on the floor on the table, kind of like Gosnell in Pennsylvania, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, probably everybody there in Pennsylvania knows about Gosnell. Yeah, <laughs> we hope so. We hope so. Yeah. And there were a number of House of Horrors in Michigan that got shut down. You know, same thing. Uh, it's not the most ethical people who choose to kill babies for a living. And so that terrified her and she backed out. And then it was arranged for her to go to a more expensive abortion doctor um, through the rape counselor that the police referred to. And my aunt helped set it up. And my birth mother said there were no pregnancy resources back then, no pregnancy resource centers back then. But if there had been, she would have gone. But she said nobody offered her any other help or hope, just abortion. And she said with you know two other children, she couldn't leave to go to New York, couldn't afford to go to New York. And the night that she was to abort me, she was, my aunt was going to drive her. She was to meet someone at night next to the thinker, the replica of the thinker statue, statue um, outside of De Detroit Institute of Arts. And um, Rodin's famous thinker statue, by the way, is based upon the passage from Dante's Inferno that um, the gates of hell that warns like all who enter here, there's no going back. No, it's absolutely true with abortion, right? Mm -hmm. So she said that um, someone would approach her, say her name, blindfold her, put her in the backseat of a car, take her somewhere abort me, blindfold her again, drop her back off. And if she was further along than thought or if there are any complications, they'd have to keep her overnight. And again, she was terrified for her safety. It was $750. And the night she was to abort me, she was prepared to go through with it. But she spoke with this doctor on the phone, expressed concern for her safety. He called her stupid. And she said, if you're going to call me names, forget it. And then he went on to swear at her profusely and she hung up the phone. He called her back the next day to try to once again talk her into allowing him to take my life. And same conversation took place. She hung up again. There's a documentary that's used in feminist studies all over the US and Canada, the only documentary film ever done on um, you know, the Back Alley Network. And it's called Back Alley Detroit. So I could watch this film and see the men who were going to take my life. <clears throat> you know, I know the time, place, manner, how much money was on my head. And there's people who would like to say, oh, well, that wasn't you, or that wouldn't have been you. And it's like, well, who would it have been? And oh, it just wouldn't have been you yet. Yet, when they have ultrasound photos of their babies who are wanted babies, they show everybody, you know, they show their children, this was you, and everybody understands that, oh, that was me. But in the context of abortion, oh, no, that wasn't you, or I, I don't know what that is, which is just complete intellectual dishonesty. Yeah, absolutely. So what, what do, so it's basically the law that saved your, saved your life, like you said, your, your, your birth mother would not break the law, per se, she was too far by that point. To, right. to get the abortion. And that's important to be noted. It is. And she maintained that position for six years after we met, saying that it should have been my right. You don't know what it was like, which mm -hmm. is true. I don't, but I know that she's okay. It was a temporary situation. Life went on for her. And I'll tell you, for decades now, 
I'm the only one that she's had a relationship with out of her three children. I'm the one who's honored her. And, you know, six years after we met, she changed her mind about abortion. And interestingly, it was her first great-grandchild whose life was spared that changed her mind. Because my birth mother, when we met, she had this five-generation photo. And there had been three photos she showed me. And there was a picture of her as a baby with her great great grandmother and she had three of these photos where they had five generations of women alive three times in a row and so now this was the fourth time and it's interesting how like that photo meant something to her that family history of five generations meant something to her so when her um, grandchild was in an unplanned pregnancy with because her my birth mother's mom was still alive so her grandchild was in an unplanned pregnancy with her first great-grandchild there would be another five generation photo and there was and I got to be in it wow um so she said that she was so happy she's having this baby so it's like my grandmother who raised me lost her first great-grandchild and it was the first great-grandchild from my birth mother that changed her heart about abortion. Wow. Rebecca, we have just a couple of minutes left. I'm wondering if you can tell people how you go about educating people about the human face behind abortion and about Save the One. Sure. So on our blog on savetheone.com, and it's the number one, not the word one, we have um, almost 300 stories on our blog of people who were conceived and raped, mothers who became pregnant by rape who are raising their children, birth mothers post-abortive from rape. Um, and you know, it's stories that pierce the heart in ways in which arguments cannot. Um, when I was in law school, we learned something called IRAC, issue rule application conclusion. So you have to state the issue and then the rule, like, or what the law is or the principle, and then you have to apply it to the real people in your case at hand and then conclude that's how you write a legal brief. And it's important to do that with the abortion issue. A lot of people are really good at stating what the rule should be, right? The principle, but then they fail to apply it to real stories or they might tell a real story, but they miss out on applying the rule to that story and really explaining. So um, for example, what you could do is you could just say, well, I'm there, I know Rebecca Kiesling and I don't believe that she deserved the death penalty for the crime of her biological father. You know, she deserved to have been born. She didn't deserve to be killed. You know, you're, you've taken a story and you've applied the principle to it. Um, and that's what makes the difference. That's why, you know, Christ spoke in terms of, of parables. He taught lessons through stories, right? He didn't just tell stories for no reason. He taught them to teach a lesson. And so I encourage people, please, you know, women share their stories because they want to make a difference. They Absolutely. Want and, you Absolutely. know, there's a myth that a true rape victim couldn't possibly love that child. And that's just not true. Right. Thank you so much, Rebecca, with being with us today. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you so very much for having me. And remember, there's always a reason to choose life.